Matthew series. Um, I'm not going to give you much of an introduction this week because we're going to cover a lot, but we are uh, going to cover the entire book of Matthew uh, using sub-series so that we can more ac- adequately cover all the subject matter. Uh, right now, we're in a series called Upside Down, uh, and as he said earlier, the title of today's message is Love Worth Finding. Now, as quick as I can get through that. Now, this week, we're going to kind of continue that theme that we've been talking about the last few weeks of the value of every believer, of how valuable every believer is to God, right? And now, we're going to look at three parables today. We'll, we'll start in Matthew, but we'll end up in Luke. We're going to look at the, the lost sheep in Matthew. It's going right along with our chapter. Uh, we're going to look at the lost coin and the lost son in Luke chapter 15, all right? Because all these parables teach us something very valuable about the value uh, of God's people to him, right? Now, here's the thing. There's always a thing, and here's this one. Um, you're going to find that a lot of you may be familiar with these, but a lot of times they've been misrepresented, mistaught, and so sometimes they're confusing to people, and they really shouldn't be, right? Even though they, they seem like one of those, some of those parables that are a little bit confusing, they're really not once you just look at the context. Because a lot of people will use all of these parables, all three that I'm going to use today, uh, as an illustration of someone coming to faith or becoming a believer, Right now, the context isn't going to support that for any one of these parables. It just won't support that because the context is actually how God values believers. That's the context as we've been going through this, right? Even, he even values the believer that's straying or, or getting out of the will of God. So I just think it's really important that you understand this, this might be a little different than the way you've heard it, but I, th- I think it might open your eyes to a few things. But here's the thing we've got to recognize. Every believer goes through a rough patch every once in a while. Is there any believer here who's been saved longer than a week who has not had a rough patch in their faith? Okay, let the record state that no one raised their hand wisely, right? So we all go through those rough patches, and sometimes when we go through those rough patches, I mean, we get pulled a little bit away from God. Has anybody ever felt themselves be just even slightly pulled away from God sometimes when you're going through difficulties? It happens, right? And when that does happen, sometimes you feel like reconnecting with God may be difficult. I mean, that's how we feel anyway. Like, it's, it's going to be tough to get reconnected with him. But today we're going to find out that even when we lose our way, God will come and find us. He's always trying to initiate that reconnection. So let's jump into Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 12. We're going to talk about the lost sheep. It says, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others on the hills and go out to search for that one that is lost? Now, one of the things I love about Jesus' parables is every time he's teaching, he always makes them, I mean, so applicable to his audience. They're always so practical, right? Because in this first parable about the sheep, he uses a real familiar occupation, right? I mean, sheep herding was very, very common. A lot of people did it at that time, right? And so everyone knew a lot about it. And everyone knew that a shepherd and a sheep had a unique, kind of a unique relationship. They knew how valuable those sheep were to the shepherd. It was a love-style relationship. I mean, Jesus even called himself the good what? If you look at John 10, starting in verse 14, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep, and they know me, just as my Father knows me, and I know the Father, so I sacrifice my life for the sheep. 
But think about it. I mean, a shepherd spent most of his time with the sheep. He, I'd say he spent more time with the sheep than he did his family because he had to constantly pay attention to them, constantly watch them. See, he had to, you know, defend them when predators would come. I mean, literally, a shepherd would come between his sheep and a bear or a lion because he would defend them that, I mean, he was that serious about defending them, right? If, if, if one of his sheep were to become sick or wounded, they would literally carry that sheep, carry that sheep until whatever was wounded on them healed or their sickness went away, would carry them, right? I mean, that's, that's out there. So what, what, what really happened was these sheep became more than just profit to them. It became kind of like part of the, anybody ever feel like their dog's part of the family? Anybody, raise your hand if you're a dog person, come on. Raise your hand if you can't stand dogs. I knew there'd always be some, right? That's got to be a sin. Anyway, but, you know, sometimes you just can't imagine your life without your dog. I mean, th- these, these became more than livestock to them. They loved them like pets. They were like part of the family. So not only were they valuable to them monetarily, they were emotionally valuable to them. They were attached to them. Okay, so he uses this parable, and he says, if a guy has a hundred sheep, and one, just one, strays away, wouldn't they go after it? And everybody sitting around would be like, yeah, because they understood that relationship. But you and I might hear that and say, why? Why would they go after one sheep? I mean, they still have 99. Why risk leaving the 99 to go get the one that was too dumb to stray away? I mean, besides... They get what they get for being dumb and running away. That's how a lot of us think. But that's not how they thought. Because the shepherd looked at each each individual sheep as valuable to him. He developed a relationship with them. You know, I like to think he probably had each one named. Can you imagine naming 100 sheep? I worked in a chicken farm when I was a kid, and I tried to name all the chickens. And after about, you know, 20 of them, I'm like, forget it, you're all chicken to me. But anyway, I mean, he had a personal relationship love for each one they were all equally valuable to him right so he knew that any one sheep left to itself left to its own devices would never make it would absolutely never survive and i can just imagine him sitting there thinking and worrying about what that sheep's going to go through have you ever lost a pet and we we think worst case scenario right away don't we we think oh the poor thing's probably wounded laying in a ditch somewhere and howling out for me don't we? I mean, this is probably how he was thinking. He knew that, you know, sheep are not the smartest of animals, which is kind of sad because we're always compared to sheep in the Bible, but they're just not the smartest of animals. They cannot defend themselves. How many people have a watch sheep for their house? Anybody ever see sheep fighting, you know, anywhere? <laughs> Doesn't happen. What are they going to do? You know, choke somebody to death with the, with the wool on them? What are they going to do? Right? They're docile animals. I mean, they cannot defend themselves sheep make bad decisions because they're dumb they make bad decisions they only think about themselves now it's starting to make sense why he compares them to us if you know a sheep thinks to itself hmm i'm hungry there's something i want to eat they don't think that wow what you're about to eat is right on the edge of a cliff the ground soft you might fall off they're like nope food hungry i'm eating you know what i mean and they'll walk up and eat and fall right off the cliff What's sad is the other sheep will go, hey, what's that? And they'll walk up and they'll go right after it. They required someone to take care of them. So he was completely worried about this one sheep that left. So, so what is Jesus trying to teach here? 
Okay, the sheep in this parable represents believers, right? It represents us. And as, you know, as I've said, a lot of times people misuse this. They try to say that this is a salvation passage, that the straying sheep somehow represents a lost person, right? And that, and that God going to rescue him is God going to offer him salvation. That, that's just completely out of context. Because the sheep that strayed here was already a part of his flock. It was already his sheep. The shepherd owned the sheep. He wasn't going out shopping for a new sheep. He wasn't going to the mall to pick up the latest in sheep, right? I mean, he was going out to find one of his own that had gotten distracted and strayed from the rest of the flock. And here's what he's trying to teach us. Listen, God always pursues the sheep of his flock, meaning believers, even when they stray, even when they stray, because every believer is equally valuable to God. And when one wanders off, his number one priority is to get that sheep back in the flock. Because like the shepherd, he knows we don't do so well on our own believers. We just don't. We make dumb decisions, don't we? We make dumb decisions. And he doesn't want us to to be hurt because of our rebellion. So he's always working to try to bring us back. And what's funny is we don't think of it that way. When we're out of the will of God, we think, oh, now I've ticked him off, don't we? Have you ever been ashamed to turn back to God because of what you've done, like he doesn't know? You know, and you think, oh man, this is going to be tough to get reconnected to God because he's probably mad at me and I'm going to have to make it right. And, and that's just not the way it is. He's, his number one desire is to bring you back, right? And a lot of people tell me, well, when I strayed from God, I wasn't sure how to know when he was trying to bring me back. It's pretty easy. It's pretty easy, actually. You know... You know when everything starts going wrong in your life? See, God knows how to get our attention. Have you ever noticed when you start to get away from God, things just start to go wrong? You ever notice that? I mean, everywhere you turn, that's not a coincidence. Things start going wrong. And we're thinking, gosh, what's the deal here? I'm having such bad luck. It's not bad luck. God wants you back. And he's not going to make your life easy when you're living in rebellion. So what's happening is you're falling under the light version of his discipline as he's trying to bring you back, right? He wants to get you back in the flock. See, shepherds used to have a rod and a staff. I'm sure you guys have heard that in the 23rd Psalm, your rod and your staff, they comfort me, which is ironic because let me tell you what they used them for. Okay, a rod was like a billy club. And a shepherd would train in using them. They would become like a shepherd ninja with that thing. They could kill an animal from like 20 yards with it. Throw it and kill an animal with it. They could also throw it lighter and bonk a sheep on the head that was getting away. And remind them, hey, get back here. Right? And sometimes if a sheep continually try, you know, kept leaving the flock, they would take that, throw it, and break their leg. Everybody's like, oh, that's terrible. Well, they knew that that sheep was not learning its lesson, so then they would have to pick that sheep up and carry it until it healed. And by the time that sheep's leg healed, it developed a bond with the shepherd because the shepherd was personally carrying it and caring for it. And that bond was so tight it would never leave again. So he would use that discipline to keep the sheep in line. And his staff was just a big cane. And when a sheep would start to get out of the path, he'd just reach up his real long and smack it. And a lot of them had a hook on it, and he could grab one by the neck and pull it back in. Has anyone here ever felt God reach out with that staff and give you a swat? Anybody? Just one of us, all the rest of you living it? All the time? 
You know, sometimes he's jerked me back by the neck. Sometimes he's tapped me with that to get me back in line. Sometimes when I've been real rebellious, I found out how comforting the rod is. And that's what's happening when things start to go wrong in your life, just like the shepherd will, will do these things to bring the sheep back. That's God trying to get you back, trying to keep you in a place that you're safe, where he can bless you. And if he has to, he'll even go to more extreme measures, which is another message. But he's going to do everything he can to keep you in line because he loves us so much, he doesn't want to let us go. Now, when I say let us go, it doesn't mean lose your salvation. What it means is he doesn't want us to let us, he doesn't want to let us go out into the world and suffer unnecessarily when he has a life planned for us where he can bless us. He has that. He loves us so much that when we stray, he knows that we are a love worth finding, and he will keep coming and keep pursuing us until he gets us back. All right, so that you see how he was drawing this parallel between the 99 that didn't leave and the one that did. He was saying, listen, here's how much God loves you. Yes, there's times you might stray, but he will come for you because you mean that much to him. Now, we're going to jump over to Luke because Luke's going to explain this a couple different ways, but it's, it's actually the same point. Luke chapter 15, let's talk about the lost coin. Luke 15, 8, it says, Jesus said, Or what woman, if she had ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? Okay, anybody ever lose money? You ever lose money? Like, I'm not talking like a quarter. I'm talking where you're like, I know I had 420s and I have two. Anybody ever do that? Now, some of you, that might be chump change. To me, I am ripping the house to shreds, down to the studs to find that. Right? So it says this woman lost ten, or had 10 silver coins and she lost one coin. Verse 9, when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Okay, I'll deal more with that repents and sinner here in just a little bit. But something I think is interesting here is Luke did something different than you see in a lot of parables. He's discussing a woman. I'm not being a sexist, but there's not a lot of women in parables. There just isn't, okay? I don't know why. But he discusses a woman who lost a coin Instead of a shepherd and a sheep or anything like that, he, he, he talks about a woman. Now, the coin that they're speaking of in, his, in, this, uh, in these verses was called a drachma. Okay, and a drachma was about one day's labor. So she had ten days' labor worth of coins here. And when she realized it was gone, she was really bothered because, listen, it's not like she can say, oh, well, you know, I've got, I've got nine other coins. I don't mind losing a whole day's labor. Nobody thinks like that. Nobody thinks like that. So... Literally, it, she gets really bothered, and she wants that coin back. It means the world to her. So what does she do? She literally tears everything apart, everything apart until she finds it. Now, why did he use a woman? The scripture refers to the church in the feminine. You guys ever hear that? Where it calls the, the church a her or a she? Uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 through 27. It says, for husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church and he gave up his life for her, referring to the church, to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. So the Bible refers to the church in the feminine, 
in the Greek, in the feminine in the Greek. And this is what he came to do, was to introduce this New Testament theology that salvation's by faith alone, and to build the New Testament church, which would be referred to as a her. So when he says, what woman, he's saying, he's talking about the responsibility of the church to also see the value in every believer, and when one strays, they should also be willing to go after them. They should be willing to do that. See, there's times when all of us allow darkness in our life or sin, right? Everybody does it. And unfortunately, whenever you allow sin in your life or darkness in your life, it gets messy. Doesn't it get messy? When there's sin in your life, things just start to fall apart. This is what he's talking about. Sometimes the people in your church might get involved in sin and need you to reach out. And some churches look at it and say, this is just too messy to deal with. What will everybody in the community think? What will everybody, you know, and all our church buddies think about this? You know, what will my congregants think, pastors say to themselves? Because, gosh, it's just pretty messy what they're involved in. Maybe it's best we just let them go. That's been the mindset of a lot of churches now. And what he's saying is when the church begins, realize something. Every individual in it is valuable and important to God. And never settle with just letting someone drift and go out there and struggle without you coming around them and trying to help them. Like the shepherd would leave the 99 for the one, so also the church should always be willing to go and find that one that's lost, that one that's slipping away. And who knows why it happens? Sometimes people go through a death. And have you ever seen grief just almost destroy somebody? I've witnessed that so many times in my 20 years in ministry. I've I've seen grief literally take some of the strongest believers and just destroy them. And people feel uncomfortable about it. I don't want to talk to them about that. You know, and they're like, oh, they just need their time. And, and, you know, everything's going really good back here. Let's let them figure it out. You ever hear that mindset in a church? He's saying every coin in that building, every soul, every believer in that building is important to me. And when they drift off, you have got to love them like I love them. And that means that you have to be willing to enter the darkness. That means you have to be willing to get a little messy if you have to in order to restore them back into fellowship. Right? You have the Holy Spirit of God living in you, which should illuminate the forgiveness of God in you, the light, and drive you into whatever mess it is in order to bring that person back into fellowship because they're important to me, so important that The angels in heaven rejoice when one repents. Now let me deal with this repentance because here's another area where people struggle when they're reading these. The word repent in the Greek is metanoia, and what it means is to change your mind or change your direction. That's what it means. Every time somebody hears repent, they automatically think that that's someone believing for their eternal life. It is not. It is not. It's not even, you know, per se a biblical word. Anyone that changes their mind about something, repents of it. You ever ate something that made you sick and you repented of it? You are, change your mind about that. You're never going to eat that again, right? Listen, same thing. They're saying when, when one person changes their mind about the situation there is and turns back and comes back into the fold, it said that even the angels in heaven rejoice at that because they know how important that is to God, right? So when you hear repentance, don't automatically think somebody's coming to faith. And people say, well, don't you have to repent to believe? Anybody ever hear that? Let me explain that. Repent means to change your mind. Believe means you completely trust in something. Right? 
If you do not believe that Jesus is your Savior, and something convinces you, and you change your mind about who Jesus is and believe, then you become a believer, right? Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. The moment you change your mind and believe, you've repented. The moment you've repented about who Jesus is, you believe. It's two sides of one coin, not another step. So when it says that even the angels rejoice, it said she went out and got all of her friends and came together. That was representative of, listen, this person who strayed out of God's will, who was going to suffer at the hands of the world, has, has come back and is in the fold again. Let's celebrate that one of our own didn't have to be destroyed by the enemy. That's what this is talking about. So he's really putting some strong, strong lessons here. You know, it's so easy to look at these, these parables and go, gosh, I don't know, I think I would have, I think I'd have stayed with the 99 or wealth. The rest of the church was doing good. I don't think I'd have went after that one. Let me put it to you this way. Let's say you take three kids to the mall. They're all your kids. See where I'm going? Husbands, let me tell you because you'll really get it. And let's say you're shopping and everything's going great. And all of a sudden you turn around and little Johnny is gone. And you look everywhere. You ever notice when one of our kids gets away from us, it starts off concerned. Hey, Johnny, where you at? Come on, Johnny, come on out. Now, this isn't funny. And then it accelerates. Then it's more like, Johnny, seriously, where are you? You know what I mean? Then you lose all reality. You're like shoving people over. You see my kid? Move, move it, lady. Get your stroller out of the way. Come on, move it. Get that walker out of here. You know what I mean? Where is my son? How many people would call their wife and go, honey, you know, I've got some bad news. You know, we have three wonderful children. Well, I've lost Johnny, but here's the good news. The other two are healthy and fine and standing right by me, so I think we're good. How many people want to make that phone call? Nobody. It's the exact same thing. God is not willing to let even one go. And he expects the church to not be willing to let even one go. Because each one is a love worth finding to him. He loved him enough to die for him. That's a love worth finding when they start to drift away from him. They mean something to him. Okay, now, the last one I think everybody's really familiar with. How many people have ever heard of the prodigal son? I'm going to talk about this. I love this, this passage, but I'm going to be real honest with you. I probably heard this story butchered more than any other parable in the Bible. Literally butchered. Butchered. Did I say butchered? Good, butchered. All right. Listen to this, Luke 15, 11. To illustrate the point further, Jesus told them a story. A man had two sons. The younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. So his father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons. Now, so many times people misrepresent this. Notice it's talking about a father and his two sons. Okay, so it's a father and his two sons. They belong to him. They have his DNA, right? They're his children. I'll start with that, all right? And one son decides he wants his inheritance early. Now, this is the ultimate disrespect at that time. Actually, it's probably still the ultimate disrespect now. So basically, he wants his, his, his inheritance early. And so he tells his dad, listen, I don't want to wait. I want it now. You just won't die. That's basically what he's saying. 
I mean, that's about what he's saying. He's basically saying, I am tired of waiting for you to die. You're like 90. Shouldn't you go home? Die. Every time you get sick, you get better. Eat some grease. Do something. You got to die. But evidently, you are not going to die. So I want my money now. Because I really don't want to be here under your rules doing things your way. I don't want to wait for the life plan you have for me. I want mine now. Because you won't die. It's really your fault. Right? This is what we're seeing here. Now, the father doesn't do anything. He just relents. And he does what his son asked him to do. Sometimes God will let us have our way, even when our way is not good. Did you know that? Because sometimes we need to learn that lesson. It's like your kid. If your kid keeps doing something, you're going to get hurt. If you keep messing with that hammer, you're going to get hurt. Finally, you go mess with that hammer. See how it works out for you. Then you hear, wow, ah, okay, maybe you won't mess with it next time, right? This is the same deal. He's saying, listen, okay, we'll do it that way. I'll, I'll, I'll give you your inheritance. I'll just give you your inheritance. How many times do we get tired of waiting on God's will for our lives? Now, a lot of people want to be self-righteous and say, I never get tired of that. Yeah, that's a lie. Every once in a while, we're praying for something, and God isn't answering on our time frame, so we're like, okay, God must be telling me to do whatever I want. We get tired of waiting on his plan, so we enact our own plan. We think we've got a good idea, so we just do it, right? We're going to live according to our will, not his, because evidently there's something wrong with the communication process. He's not responding to me. When actually he is responding, he's saying, no, not now, not yet. So we try to do things our way, and that just never turns out the way we think, does it? It never works out. We think we have this elaborate plan. You're like, God, I know why you're not to, you know, giving me my way because it's so perfect you can't make any improvements upon it. So I'm just going to go ahead and take your silence as approval. So let's see what happens in this young man's life. Luke 15, starting in verse 13. It says, A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land, and there he wasted all his money in wild living. About, that time, or about the time the money ran out, a great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. He persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. That's going to be important. Verse 16. The young man became so hungry that even the pods he was feeding the pigs looked good to him, but no one gave him anything. Okay, now listen. Understand in Jewish culture, only an extremely desperate Jew would ever take a job working with pigs. They considered pigs completely unclean. They didn't eat it. They didn't work with them. They didn't want them in their lands. They thought they were nasty. They, well, I mean, they're kind of nasty, but I'm just saying. They wanted nothing to do with them. Not even a bacon double cheeseburger, hard for me to grasp. But they wanted nothing to do with them. So think how desperate he had to be to take this job. He was at his lowest point. Now let me ask you something. When the enemy was whispering in his ear saying, listen, your dad is never going to die. I think he's Methuselah. It could be another 800 years. You need to tell him to give you your stuff. You could do this much better than him. You need to get out of here. First, live it up a little bit. You've been under rules for too long. You know, go and party a little bit. Everybody deserves to let off a little steam, you know. And then when you're done with that, you can start building your own house and your own lands, and you'll be way better than him. I think you should just go do this. 
That's what the enemy does. He whispers in our ear. But here's the thing is, while the enemy was whispering in his ear, he forgot to whisper how the story ends. Right? He just told him how it begins, which always sounds cool. He just didn't tell him how it ends. Because what we find out, and if you haven't found it out, you will, but when times get hard, only your real family and your real friends will be there for you. Because as soon as the money runs out or whatever it is you have that other people want, they're gone. They will give you nothing. But he didn't tell him that part of the story. He didn't let him know that. Right? He, now, he still does this. Have you ever noticed he still whispers things in our ears without telling us the end? He tells us how to have that instant gratification. He doesn't tell us that there's consequences for doing that. You know what I mean? Hey, it's okay. I mean, there's millions of people. Will they really know if you cheat on your taxes and it gets you another $1,000? Right? And you're like, yeah, that makes sense until the, you know, they call and go, hey, you're going to be audited. There's some red flags here. And you look at the enemy and he goes, hey, I didn't tell you the whole thing. You were an easy sell. Right? That's what he does. He always tells us that, oh, your wife's not paying attention to you. You deserve attention. Doesn't tell you how that ends, does he? You see what I mean? This, he's still using this same trap, and we're still falling for it. So let's move on and see what happens here, because there finally comes a moment when, when common sense finally outweighs his pride and his greed. Luke 15, starting in verse 17. It says, when he finally what? Came to his senses. He said to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I'm dying of hunger. I will go to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. So this young man finally remembers who he was and who he still is, because no matter what he's done or where he's moved to, no one can take his DNA out of him. He's still a son of his father. He still is who he says he was, his father's son. That's not changed. He's just his father's son that's strayed. And he remembers, you know, I didn't have it as bad as I thought. But I don't know if there's any way I can get his forgiveness. I don't know if there's any way he will take me back after what I've done. That's the ultimate disrespect. I couldn't, I basically told him I wish he would hurry up and die. And now I'm going to go back. I've got to come up with something. I have got to think of a way to put the right words together to get him to love me again. To get him to forgive me. To get him to receive me back in. Even if it's not as a son, just as, just as a slave, I'll take that. I've got to think of some way to, you know, to curb his, his anger. So he starts coming up with this speech, and he's actually rehearsing it. I mean, he's rehearsing it as he's heading back. Father, I have sinned against God and against you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Just make me as one of your servants. And he's saying it, probably trying different voices, different accents, you know, different ways of saying it. As he's starting to walk back. And we all do this sometimes, don't we? We get out of the will of God, and we all decide how we're going to bargain our way back into the will of God. Anybody ever have that prayer where you offer God a trade for something? You ever think of how stupid that is? Because he'd be like, Lord, I will never do that again if you will just, and I'm like, yeah, seriously, he knows I will if I'm not telling the truth. You know, so he's trying to think of a way to bargain back into the family. But what we, talk, what we and this young man often forget about is that God's love and his forgiveness are amazing. I mean, amazing. The reason it's called the grace of God is because grace means something you can't earn. 
You didn't do anything to have his love in the first place. What makes you think you have to do something to get his love now? He loved you without you deserving it before he ever left, before we ever get out of his will. We forget this. Let's take a look at this, Luke 15, 20. So he returned home to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Filled with what? Love and compassion. He ran to his son. He ran to his son. Now imagine he saw his dad coming, running. He's going, oh my gosh, he's just going to come and stab me before I even get on the property. You know, because this is probably what he's thinking. So he ran to his son, and then he embraced him, and he kissed him. This whole time he's rehearsing, thinking of ways to earn his father's love again. And the whole time he was gone, the father's looking at the horizon. Right? And he probably couldn't even focus during business deals. What are you looking at? Oh, nothing. You know, people were probably talking about his son. Hey, you know what I heard your son's doing? Listen, don't tell me. I know he's in a rough spot right now. I'm praying for him. I'll bet every night before he went to bed, his heart was aching. Because he didn't know where his son was or how his son was doing. The thing he wanted more than anything in the world was not to get his inheritance back. Was not to get revenge or penance from this young man. You know what he wanted? He wanted his son. He wanted to be able to embrace his son. He loved his son. He knew his son was gone. But he knew his son was a love worth finding. He was waiting on him and all of a sudden... He sees him coming over the horizon, so he was probably sitting on the porch looking again. And he takes off running to him, and he hugs him, and he kisses him. You know, this young man had been working with pigs. Anybody ever work with pigs? Anybody ever been around somebody that's worked with pigs all day? They stink. <laughs> Nothing against them. Pigs stink. You got a shower afterwards, right? Right? This guy just climbs out of the hog bin and says, I'm going home. He stinks. He's coming over the hill, and his dad looks right past how filthy he's become and just embraces him and kisses him. He doesn't care what he smells like. That is his son, and he's home. He doesn't care about anything else. He's home. I just, I love the picture that this presents to us. I love this picture. Because when we get out of God's will, all he really wants us to do is come to our right mind and remember who we are and that he has a life for us planned that will actually work. He just wants us to change our mind about that decision and turn and head back to him. He doesn't want penance. He doesn't want revenge. He doesn't want us to go make everything right. You know what he wants? He wants us to come back so that he can embrace us because he sent his, done, his son to die for us because we... Our love worth finding. Even when we stray, we're worth it to him. And when we come back, he'll forgive us. He will forgive us. Now, the way his father received him, I think shocked him a little bit. Look at Luke 15, 21. It says, his son said to him, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I am no longer worthy to be your son. I mean, you know, he'd rehearsed it the whole way, right? So he's thinking, you know, the emotional wear off, I better drop my, you know, my bomb on him here and give my, my big speech to him. But right in the middle of that, I am no longer worthy of being called your son. Notice he didn't even get to say, make me one of your servants. This means his father cut him off. Look, verse 22, but his father said to the servants, quick, 
Bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. And kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead. That word dead can mean separated. Did you know that? Was dead and has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. So the party began. <laughs> right? So he's, he's reciting his speech. Father, I have sinned. Looking at the things he wrote on his arm against you. And, and his father goes, yeah, okay, shh. Yells to his servants, bring me a robe for him. Bring me a robe. Listen, the son in an estate always had a robe. And he always had a ring that they would make purchases with. It gave him authority in the home to make, you know, they could go into town and use that as a stamp. And you're thinking, well, where was his robe? Where was his ring? I'd say he hocked it. What do you think? I mean, if he's willing to climb into a hog pen with a bunch of pigs and want to eat what they're eating, I'd say he probably sold it. He got that desperate. And his dad didn't say, where's your robe? Where's your ring, you idiot? He says, bring him another robe. He's my son. He should be wearing that robe. Bring him a ring. He's my son. He should have that ring. He's home. He's mine. I love him. I'm glad he's here. I'm welcoming him back into the home. I'm going to restore his sonship fully. You know, we need to think of that when we get out of the will of God. When we get out of the will of God, when we go back, all the blessing that he's taken away from us because we've strayed, He just gives it back to us. He doesn't make us do anything for it. We're his children. He loves us. He wants us there. He wants to embrace us. Yes, we got lost because of our own bad decision, but he never stopped looking for us. He never stopped trying to get us back because we were a love worth finding. He wasn't going to let us stay lost. He just wants us back, and when we come to our right mind, he'll put us back in our right position, a blessed child of the Father. This is powerful. These three parables are so powerful because they tell us something we should never forget, and that is God values every believer when they're doing what they're supposed to, when they're not doing what they're supposed to. He values every believer. His son voluntarily gave his life so that we could become children of God. That means something to him. He will never give up on you. He'll never stop looking for you. You can never get too lost, too dirty, in too much darkness. For him to come looking for you. You can never do so much that when you come back, he won't welcome you back and put you right back in your position, blessed child of God, because we are a love worth finding, because we were a love worth sending his son to die for. So he was really trying to get this new church that was about to form. These, these new converts, he was trying to get them to understand. I know the priests have let you down. I know the government's let you down. God will not. You are all that valuable to me. I'm going to go ahead and close there. I'm going to ask you would to please bow your heads. If this is your first time here, we always like to give an invitation, and here's why. Honestly, I just believe the word of God speaks to us. It doesn't matter who's delivering it. The word of God is designed to be alive. It's not like normal words on a page. It's inspired by God. The Greek there means breathed out of God. And sometimes when you hear the word of God, it's like he's whispering 
to you. It's like the message was made for you. And if you're not sure where you stand with him, it, I always like to give an opportunity to take that first step. Now, I don't point people out. I don't chase you down after church. I don't do any of that stuff. I don't make anybody come forward. I just pray for you through the week that whatever the enemy is whispering in your ear, the love of God will be so much louder you can't ignore it. So if you're not sure where you stand with, just make eye contact with me, lift your hand up. I will bless those people. I will pray for you. Because he's calling for a reason. Because even if you've never trusted him yet, he sees you as a potential son, a potential daughter, and you're a love worth finding. Listen, if you're a believer here, maybe you've been out of the will of God. Maybe no one knows that but you and God. Maybe you play the role. You go to church, you say the things you're supposed to say, but maybe your heart's far from him. Listen, whatever it is that's holding you from him, trust me, if you'll change your mind, if you'll reconnect, you'll find he's been waiting the whole time. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for all that you do. I thank you, Lord, that even though we are continually sinful, even as believers, God, we're just not ever going to be good enough. But I thank you that your love and your grace are more powerful than our weakened state, than who we have become because of sin. God, I just pray if there's someone here who doesn't know you, whatever's holding them back, I just pray they push that aside and realize that you know who they are, you know what they are, and you want them. You still want them to be a part of your family. If they can just believe that what your son did was enough, you've promised you'll give them eternal life. And if they make that decision today, I just pray they contact us or contact someone close to them that, that can walk with them in that journey. And we know, God, that you've never turned anyone away. And God, for those of us who know you, first let us remember how important people are to you. God, every believer, whether they're struggling or doing great, is important to you. And it's our job as their brothers and sisters in Christ to, to be there for them, to strengthen them. Let us always be diligent to see when someone's struggling and to never let them drift too far, but embrace them and bring them back to the fold. God, we just know as we leave here, we're going to face so many attacks from the enemy. Give us strength to face them this week, to live what we profess. We just pray, God, that when people hear us, they hear you. When they see our actions, they see you moving. And we just pray you keep us safe. Lord, if you don't return to take us home before we get to meet again, let us come together excited to praise you and worship you because you are so worthy. We just ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.